At each stop on his tours, famous escape artist Harry Houdini boasted that there had never been a lock he couldn't pick or a jail cell from which he couldn't escape. In fact, Houdini dared anyone to prove otherwise. A London bank hoping to show off their vault state-of-the-art locking system took him up on his challenge. Houdini was locked in the vault, and he had three and a half minutes to escape. As with all his dangerous stunts, Houdini had one stipulation that he had written into his contract, that just before starting, he could kiss his wife goodbye, just in case. But you see, Houdini would get more from his wife than a kiss. For while lips to lips, Mrs. Houdini would pass Harry a small piece of wire that he would use to pick the locks. Well, on this particular lock, Houdini worked feverishly. After a minute, he didn't hear the familiar clicking of the turning tumblers. After two minutes, there was still no sound. By this point, the great Houdini had broken out into an intense sweat. Would this be the end of his career? Had he finally met his match? Well, as he pulled a rag from his pocket to wipe the sweat off his forehead, he leaned against the door of the vault. It opened. Houdini never heard the click of the tumblers because the door had never been locked. (laughs) And this is the problem with many of us. Jesus has freed us from bondage. The power of the cross has broken our chains. Satan is defeated. We should be living free. The reason we're not is that we've chosen to believe the lies of the enemy rather than trust in the truth. For as Jesus teaches us in tonight's chapters, it is the truth that sets us free. Well, we continue through chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word... You are my disciples indeed. I love this, to abide. It means to rest. It means to trust. Here's a helpful word picture for you. Lying on a hammock isn't like sitting on a stoop. You sit on a stoop. You take a sit. But you're still in control. You can still jump off that stoop at a moment's notice. But when you lie in a hammock, you lose yourself, don't you? You lose control. The hammock holds you. The hammock keeps you. It's a place where you can lay back and rest and relax and stay. And this is what it means to abide. Think of the words of Jesus as a hammock. Have you laid back in his promises? Are you resting in his words tonight? Have you released yourself in your situation to his control? Real disciples abide in Jesus and in his word. And then we're told in verse 32... And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, truth sets us free because it's deception that enslaves us. People submit to slavery when they believe they have no other alternative. Lies are the chains of bondage. Jesus tells us the truth, and if we believe his words enough to follow them, they lead to abundant life. Folks get enslaved when they seek truth apart from Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is teaching 
in the Jewish temple. And his audience is twofold. His own disciples and then also the Jews who've been listening to him. Here the Jews chime in. They answered him, well, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Notice their pride, their national patriotism swelled up inside them. They were Abraham's kids. In essence, they say, you can't free us, for we have never been slaves. You think, though, how could they have made that statement? Didn't they know their history? I mean, what about the 400 years they'd spent in Egypt? About 600 years prior to this moment in the temple, Babylon had sacked Jerusalem and had taken the Jews captive to Babel. They were in bondage at that time for 70 years. Even since then, Israel had been a province of Persia and then Greece. And even as this conversation was unfolding, there was a battalion of Roman legionnaires occupying a fortress right there on the Temple Mount, just a few yards from where they were standing. For the last six centuries, Israel had been a political puppet at best. They were a slave to their own pride. Well, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And Jesus exposes the real bondage. There is a spiritual slavery. I'm sure you've heard the line, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Real prison cells are made of faithlessness and fear and tainted perspectives and worry and foolishness and deception and disobedience and pride. Some of us tonight are enslaved in our own cell. And each time you give in to sin, it's harder to say no the next time, isn't it? You weaken your resistance until you end up with the backbone of a jellyfish. These Jews were slaves to their own sin and to their own weaknesses. You know, the prisons of the soul are created when we believe and act on lies. It's the truth about me and the truth about you and the truth about God. That's what sets us free. When a man sees the truth that's in Christ, he's forgiven. That in Christ, he has victory over sin. When these are possibilities, then he comes online to experience true freedom. What Jesus adds in verse 35, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. A slave can please his master but he can never obtain family status in a permanent place in the master's house. Only a son knows that he's a part of the family, come what may. And only Jesus, God's son, can give this kind of assurance to God's people. When you become a Christian, you are in Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that God now treats you just as he treats Jesus. Friends, that's real freedom. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And then in verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Jesus is pointing out that there's a big difference between pedigree and parentage. You might have a person's DNA, but that doesn't mean you were raised by that person. And this was true of the Jews. They had Abraham's DNA for sure. But after that, the resemblance to him ceased. They certainly didn't have Abraham's faith. Jesus tells them, you do the deeds of your father. And he was about to identify the father who had raised them when all of a sudden they get in an ugly dig. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. The Jewish leaders apparently had heard of Mary's divine conception and Jesus' virgin birth, but they didn't believe. And now they're casting aspersions on the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. They hurl this ugly insult. Yeah, it's pretty tacky for a group of distinguished priests to resort to denigrating a person's mother. Yet that's what they try with Jesus here. Well, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And remember, this was the claim that Jesus made over and over and over again. This was one of his strongest claims to deity. You see, human beings don't exist before their birth. No other human had come from God. But Jesus pre-existed before his birth. He had divine origins. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And here Jesus lures the boom. You could say he just kind of drops the mic. For the Jews had a father all right. Jesus says... You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And remember, Jesus knew firsthand the devil. He'd been dealing with that character for a long, long time. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. See, humans are made in God's image. Thus, to kill a human being is to mar God's image. This is why murder is such a terrible crime. And this has been the devil's motive from the beginning, to mar the image of God in man. Jesus continues speaking of Satan. He says, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is so skilled at spinning a lie. And the Jews were just like him. The Jews were the spitting image of their father. The devil was a liar and a murderer from the very start. See, the first human homicide wasn't Cain and Abel. It occurred earlier in the Garden of Eden. The devil tried to snuff out Adam and Eve spiritually as well as physically. And his weapon in the garden was deception. God had told the first couple not to eat the forbidden fruit lest they die. But Satan countered with an outright lie. 
you won't surely die. Understand, guys, Satan is the father of lies. Did you know in the Hebrew language, this phrase, the father of, it means the originator of. Satan was the very first person to think of twisting the truth. The devil doesn't play by the rules. His temptations are potent because they contain elements of the truth, but laced with lies. He is the master of the half-truths. This is why Paul warns us in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's wily. He's subtle. He's tricky. He's deadly. The devil is a liar and a murderer and has been so from the beginning. And the Jews at the time were acting just like him. Remember during the feast, they had entertained fake news about Jesus. and They had plotted to kill him. Verse 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. See, they were so used to dealing in lies, they didn't recognize the truth when Jesus spoke it to them. He continues, which of you convicts me of sin? The answer was no one. And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? See, Jesus is pointing out a contradiction. You can't deny me, but you won't believe me. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now earlier they tried to discredit Jesus by insulting his mother. Now they use a racial slur and a blasphemy. Samaritans were interracial people. They had Jewish blood crossed with Gentile blood. And so to call a Jew a Samaritan was an insult. And to accuse Jesus, God's Holy One, of having a demon, well, that was absolutely horrendous. That was past the pale. But they had accused him of both, of being a Samaritan and having a demon. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And here, Jesus responds to these insults with a bold claim. He must be God, for he assumes the right to grant eternal life. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. By the end of the day, by the day's end, not everyone believed in Jesus But no one was confused about his claims. They knew exactly that he claimed to be God. Verse 52. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. For Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Remember that Jews revered Abraham. They also held the prophets in high esteem. Really just below the angels. Abraham was called a friend of God. He was the father of their race. Yet both Abraham and the prophets were subject to death. So how can Jesus grant eternal life? That would mean that Jesus was greater than their father Abraham. And of course he was. But they asked him, Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, 
of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do not know him, but I do know him, and I keep his word. You can see how Jesus made great friends among the Jewish leaders with this conversation. And here Jesus drops the mic a second time. He drops another bombshell. Here it comes. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? The Jews questioned Jesus. He was not yet 50 years old. Yet had he he seen Abraham who had lived 2,000 years before him? How could that possibly happen? But when you go back and read the Old Testament, you see God's son appeared to Abraham on several occasions in the Old Testament. What we call pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus occurred multiple times in Abraham's life. You remember in Genesis chapter 18, three visitors came to Abraham's tent. And when you read the text carefully, you'll see that one of the men speaks of God in the first person, as if he is God. Clearly he was. He was the pre-incarnate Christ. It's also possible that the high priest Melchizedek was also a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Son of God. It was true. Abraham had seen Jesus. And if Jesus' previous statements were bombshells, here he drops a nuke. I mean, if Jesus had lived in the days of Twitter, verse 58 would have exploded the Twitter verse. Here it comes. For Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And this was the name Yahweh had revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now Jesus quotes the same holy, revered name, I am, but he applies it to himself. Here Jesus is removing all doubt about his deity. He is being crystal clear. Jesus is identifying himself as the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. You can't get a stronger, bolder claim than that. And this was more than these narrow-minded Jews could bear. They knew exactly where Jesus was going, what he had said. And this is why they instantly go into assassination mode. Then they took up rocks to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And I believe this was a miracle. I mean, these men were angry. They were steaming. Rocks were in their clenched fists. They weren't going to let Jesus just walk away after the claims that he had made. But like Moses, when he parted the Red Sea, Jesus splits the crowd and walks out of the temple. A supernatural shield must have protected him. As a side note, John records seven of Jesus' I am statements in his gospel. I'll run through them for you briefly. In chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. In chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
In chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. One day when he was 12 years old, my son Zach, and it's so good to see him here tonight. Good to see you, man. My son Zach asked me to hold his glasses. I don't even remember what it was for. But just for kicks, I took his glasses, because at the time I didn't wear glasses. But I took his glasses, and I just sort of slid them over my eyes like that. This is different than what I've been looking at. All of a sudden, the whole world became sharper. And for the first time, I realized I needed glasses. (laughs) A month later at my eye exam, the doctor confirmed my discovery. And I never will forget the conversation with the optometrist. He's, I said, Doc, this just can't be. I've always had 20-20 vision. What's going on here? And the answer was so depressing. Well, Sandy, you know when you get older, your eyes start to deteriorate. <laughs> hey, who's getting older? But we all do. Our eyes grow dim. Some people go blind. It's tough to accept. Yet in chapter 9, we find a man who had no problem accepting his blindness since he had lived with his handicap his whole life. This man had never seen. Chapter 9 begins. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Every 20 minutes, someone in the United States goes blind. It's a terrible tragedy to lose your sight. There's only one thing worse than going blind, and that's to have never had the opportunity to see in the first place. Imagine being born blind, to live your whole life having never seen a sunset or never beholding the azaleas bloom or the dogwoods blossom or to never see a smile on a giggly little girl's face. See, a man born blind has no reference point. He has no recollections to draw on. He has no paints or brushes to color in the pictures on the canvas of his imagination. His mental images all look alike, gray and empty and blank. And such was this man's lot in life. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. What a contrast here in perspectives. As we're going to learn later, Jesus looked at this man and thought of alleviating his suffering. His disciples looked at him and thought of affixing blame. Jesus is asking, how can I help? The disciples are thinking, who who can we condemn? But the disciples were really only reflecting the current understanding of disease and suffering among the Jews at the time. Understand, the rabbis believed that every illness, every natural disaster was caused by some specific sin. Sin and suffering supposedly had a cause and effect relationship. Tornadoes touched down on evil people. 
Cancer strikes carnal people. Heart attacks happen to heathen people. Forest fires destroy faithless people, etc., etc. As a matter of fact, one Jewish rabbi commented, there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. Other rabbis went so far as to teach that a child could sin in utero and be punished with a deformity. Other Jewish rabbis were even crueler. They asserted that if a child was born with a disorder of some kind, it had to be the result of their parents' sin. Talk about laying a guilt trip on some parents. Jesus' disciples were merely echoing the erroneous theological theories of their day. Well, in verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus shoots down the theory of the rabbis. Birth defects, incurable illnesses, natural disasters can't always be pinned on one specific sin. They may not be due to any particular sin at all. See, when sin entered our world, the whole created order became subject to randomness and futility. The theologians call it the fall. Today, Mother Nature doesn't always work in sync with her Father God. It's because of the fall. It's because of the randomness and futility that we have injected into the natural order. Suffering is now the fallout of the fall. In the here and now, seldom does God specifically inflict pain as a particular sentence or inflict a man with a sentence of pain. But what God does do is he takes our pain, that is the consequence of the fall, and he uses it for his glory. This is what we'll learn in this chapter. In his commentary on Job, author Frank Anderson, he writes this. I like it. The Bible explains suffering not so much in origins as in goals. The purpose of pain is seen not in its cause, but in its results. The man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in him. The disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? In essence, Jesus answers, it doesn't matter. What counts is how God is going to use this situation to bring himself glory. God allowed this man to be born blind so the people in the temple that day and people down through the ages since might behold the wonders of his son. Here a man who was born blind encounters a man who is about to turn on the lights. A sensational miracle is going to occur and it's going to be followed by a spiritual message. In verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And one of the marks of Jesus' ministry was his sense of urgency. You see this about him over and over again. You know, the sun rises and sets, the day begins and ends. And likewise, the plans of God have a start and they have a finish. When the sun goes down on that last day, you need to know all that are not saved will never be saved. Today is the day of salvation, but today is going to end. This is why, like Jesus, we need to be busy doing the works of God. Acts of compassion, extensions of mercy, 
proclamations of the gospel, forgiveness of sin. We need to be attempting to reconcile the people around us to their God. George Mueller puts it this way. When the day of recompense comes, our only regret will be that we have done so little for him, not that we have done too much. Isn't that the truth? It's day now, but the nighttime is coming. You know, at the outset of the Civil War, General George McClellan was the commander of the Yankee troops. McClellan was by nature a very overly cautious person. And for months, he refused to move his troops into battle. His inactivity angered and frustrated President Lincoln. Finally, Lincoln wrote to him. He said, my dear McClellan, if you don't want to use the army, I'd like to borrow it for a while. Respectfully yours, Abraham Lincoln. But King Jesus likewise gets frustrated with our inactivity. What are we waiting on? Don't you think it's past time for the army of God to move out and start serving our Lord? We all need a sense of urgency in our walk and in our witness. Well, verse 5 stirs up the faith of the blind man. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And did the blind man wonder what would happen next? For when Jesus had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man that day, or with the clay. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Here's one mudslinging campaign that had a happy ending. These miracle mud packs, they had special meaning, I hope you know. The spit was considered by the ancients to be the essence, the life of a man, the spit. The ancients believed it had been put there directly by God. Dirt was a symbol of the body. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. And in the method that Jesus chooses here for this miracle, he's actually illustrating the origin of his ministry and the source of his power. For he was God mixed with dirt. He contained the divine, the spit, but he was also the human, the clay. Verse 7, and Jesus said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. All Jesus' miracles recorded in the Gospels were staged to prove that he had been sent from God and by God. The word Siloam means sent. That's why he went to the pool. And so he went and washed, and notice, and he came back seeing. It was a miracle. The guy born blind now has 20-20 vision. And understand, the spit was not necessarily it. In Mark chapter 10, you remember Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus by just speaking the word. He healed blind eyes on other occasions through different means. It wasn't the spit. It was the power of God that opened the man's eyes. But apparently the spit played a role. Again, the ancients believed that human saliva had medicinal properties. Perhaps Jesus used the mud packs, something tangible, to sort of stir up and stimulate this man's faith. You remember the same kind of phenomena happened in the book of Acts when they grabbed hold of Paul's handkerchiefs 
And when they laid their sick in Peter's shadow, it wasn't the shadow or the handkerchiefs that had any power in it. But again, these were tangible things that stirred up people's faith that allowed them to receive what God had for them. Perhaps that's what's going on here. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, he's like him. He said, No, I'm he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? And throughout chapter 9, you're going to notice everyone is concerned with how this miracle took place. And this is always, this is still the case. We're, we're intrigued by a miracle's mechanics. But God is more interested in a miracle's message. If you could figure out how a miracle happened, it wouldn't be a miracle, would it? The question any miracle should answer is not how, but who. Notice how and who have the same three letters. An H, an O, and a W. Just change how you see them. Put the W in front of the H. The who of this miracle was more important than the how. Jesus is going to prove that. Well, the man answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Verse 12, then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Now, as we move through chapter 9, I want you to watch the progression in this man's relationship with Jesus. In verse 11, he calls Jesus a man. This is the man who's been healed. He calls him a man. In verse 17, he calls him, he is a prophet. In verse 27, he views Jesus as as a man of such stature that he is able to attract his own disciples. In verse 33, he calls Jesus a man from God. And finally, his faith has grown to the point in verse 38, he refers to Jesus as the Son of God, worthy to be worshipped. It's amazing how his faith grows in this chapter. Verse 13. Now they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And of course it was. Jesus wouldn't have had it any other way. He always loved shaking these guys up, making these little people squirm. He relished the confrontation. Nothing did more to contrast the compassion of God and the callousness of the Jews than their piddly little Sabbath regulations. But well, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, well, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. They just jump right over the miracle. You know, it's always amazing how petty and picky the legalist can get. The rules grow so large in his mind, that's all he can see. The rules, the laws, they cloud out the love of God and the power of God and the wonder of God. These Jews were so prejudiced and narrow-minded, they looked past an obvious miracle and they focused only on a technicality. Hey, when it's obvious God is at work, guys, there comes a time when we need to start questioning our technicalities. Well, according to Sabbath traditions in healing the blind man, Jesus was guilty of three violations. 
or acts of work. He made the clay. Then he made an application to the man's eyes. That was work. And then he brought about the healing. That was the third act of work. And so in the Pharisee's mind, it's, sorry, Jesus, three strikes and you're out. They ignored the most obvious fact that the blind man could now see. Verse 16. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. Apparently, some of the Jews were starting to see spiritually as this man was starting to see physically. Well, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. In other words, they questioned the miracle. Until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And I'm sorry, parents, but these parents were really a piece of work. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, that is Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. Rather than testify of Jesus and show some gratitude for him healing their son, these parents take the fifth. Just pass the buck. Oh, our son's a grown man. Let him speak for himself. In reality, they were fearful of the Jews. Yet their reaction shouldn't really come as a shock. I mean, after all, these people had left their son on the street to beg for food in the first place. Apparently, they cared more about their social standing than the boy they had brought into the world. Heaven forbid we get kicked out of the synagogue and lose our friends over our son. They denied Jesus for fear of the crowd. Now, though this man's blindness wasn't the result of his parents' sin, let me suggest that many of our young people today are blind spiritually because they have a mother and a father who are just as pathetic as these parents. Parent, do you care more about your own image than what Jesus has done and wants to do in the lives of your kids? What do you put first? Well, back to the trial, verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, deny Jesus. Tell us what we want to hear. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I like this quote. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. The work of God in a person's life speaks much louder than the skepticism of the people around him. Verse 26. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> he's now saying it tongue in cheek. The formerly blind man, he's now mocking their stubbornness. And it must have infuriated these Jews. Then they reviled him and said, 
You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. You know, if they'd been smart, they'd have stopped arguing with this guy. Half hour earlier, he's blind as a bat. If they want to discredit the miracle, they don't want to be talking to this guy anymore. The Jews are about to prove they're the blind folk. But they argue. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing. In other words, you guys got to be kidding. That you do not know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes? You guys, you guys aren't thinking... You know, he heals a man who's born blind, and he's not from God? How can that be? This man is about to give the theologians a lesson in practical theology. Hopefully, he opened a few eyes that day. Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. In other words, that God is not obligated to hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. God's more inclined to hear a believer. And these are true generalizations the man makes. But he continues, Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This is an unprecedented miracle. Thus, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, his healing was a miracle that only God could have performed. The man's logic is now overwhelming. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you now teaching us? And they cast him out. Wow, don't like the message, so we'll just completely dismiss what's said, and we'll just throw out the messenger. How pompous, how blind they had become. Bible scholar Alfred Edersham, he tells us that the rabbinical Jews, they had three kinds of excommunication. First was the rebuke. It lasted seven days. It was probationary. It was sort of a mild form of discipline. But then it was followed by the admonition. The person who was guilty was ostracized from the synagogue for 30 days. and was treated as an outcast and a sinner. Finally, the most radical form of excommunication was to cast out the unrepentant person, literally to unsynagogue him. He was permanently alienated from the community of Israel for an indefinite period of time. No one was allowed to speak to or eat with the excommunicated person. He was literally considered dead. It seems these Jews, they ran this man through all three phases of excommunication at once. Verse 18, they rebuke the formerly blind man. Verse 28, they admonish him. And then in verse 34, they toss him out for good. It's sad that one of the first sights this man saw when his eyes were miraculously opened were the venomous looks of scrunched up faces of these angry and these closed-minded Pharisees. What a tragedy. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And I love this, man. Jesus searches for this man. He tracks him down. He found him. The good shepherd always leaves the 99, and he goes in search of that one lost sheep. And chapter 9 is really the harbinger of things to come. For here a man is cast out of Judaism, but he is welcomed by Jesus. This man would be the first of many more to follow 
After the resurrection, people left Judaism in droves to become members in Jesus' church. Legalism blinds everyone living under it. But when Jesus enters our lives, we can see. The blind continue to receive sight even today. When Jesus had asked, do you believe in the Son of God? The man answers and said, he, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He said, I want to believe. Verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. The first time this man interacted with Jesus, he heard his voice, but he didn't actually see Jesus. You remember his eyes weren't open until he'd gone to the pool of Siloam, but he would never forget that voice. Now, though, he sees Jesus. He looks into his face, the result of a miracle. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Remember, the Jews detested idolatry. By the first century, the Jews had been cured of the idolatrous tendencies that had brought judgment on them in the Old Testament. At the time, the Jews worshipped no one but Yahweh. And this man knew that he had found the Son of God, that he had found God in Jesus of Nazareth. And so he worships him. And notice, Jesus does nothing to stop him. You remember in Acts chapter 14, after Paul healed the lame man at the gate of Lystra, the people of the city wanted to worship him in Barnabas, but Paul shut it all down. Paul and Barnabas were just men, not worthy to be worshipped. Jesus, on the other hand, he receives worship. He allows people to worship him. Why? Because he is God. Verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. I like what author Philip Yancey writes. What began as a tragic tale of one man's blindness ends as a surreal tale of everyone else's blindness. A newspaper reporter wrote a story about three little girls who were outside a toy store. One of the girls were blind. The other two girls were trying to describe to their friend the toys that they had seen but that she had never seen. And their efforts to describe these toys to the blind girl, they were in vain. She just couldn't grasp it. The reporter watching all this was touched by the scene and he wrote of it in his column. Well, that same night, his story appeared in the newspaper. The reporter was scheduled to attend a D.L. Moody crusade. The reporter was a skeptic. And he intended to go to the crusade to pick the evangelist to pieces. He wanted to write a scathing editorial. But during the message, Moody used the reporter's own words, his own story from earlier that day, to describe how difficult it is to explain the glories of Jesus Christ to someone who has never seen them for himself. And again, the newspaper reporter was moved with emotion. He realized how spiritually blind he had been, and he came forward at the invitation to receive Christ. Jesus is giving the same invitation to us tonight. If you think you see, you'll remain blind. But if you realize you're blind to spiritual things, you'll suddenly see.
We need to humble ourselves. Don't think we know it all. Don't think we've got it all together. We need to humble ourselves and let Jesus open our eyes and we'll truly see. Verse 40, Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sins remain. The Pharisees were blind because they assumed that they saw the truth clearly when they didn't. Pride always, hear this, pride always causes spiritual blindness. The know-it-all person is the most ignorant. Only when we admit that our vision is impaired will God put the mud packs on our eyes and help us see. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight.